Hello and welcome to Have You Seen It? I'm Emily. And I'm Ned. And each week we'll take you on a three-part cinematic adventure. We will be reviewing something currently in cinemas. A past or present wildcard. And something hot on a streaming service. So let us be your cinematic spirit guides. So you can stop scrolling. And start watching. So, welcome to episode two of series two of Have You Seen It? And this is a biggie. We're flipping the format a little bit. Emily, can you do the honours? Ned, you're the one who went to the cinema this week. What did you see? We, last night, went to see Barbie. We did. Um, And, I mean, why did we pick it, Emily? Why did you make me go to this random film with no buzz or interest? You know, just to torture you mainly. Um, No, it's the film of the year. It's got the most hype since hype was invented. Everything is pink. The marketing has been completely insane. And I think it's fair to say that Barbie core has taken over our lives. So we couldn't not go and see Barbie. Do you just want to give everyone a little outline of what Barbie's about? I've been trying to avoid this question because when you stop and try and think about the plot, it doesn't really have a plot. (laughs) So there are two realities. There's real world and there's Barbie land. In Barbie land, that's where all the Barbies live in this kind of utopia with the Kents. Uh, One day, stereotypical Barbie, played by Margot Robbie, starts getting uh, existential feelings of dread. And her and her Ken take a trip to the real world to try and get to the bottom of it. But realistically, the plot is not the most important thing about it. Tom Selinsky of Best Pick Pod said that they used play logic in it. So the way you play with your toys is the logic by which the film goes. So one thing happens, oh, and this, and then this happens, and then this happens. Mm -hmm. And so things are loosely stitched together in a way that I think works. Emily, what did you think about the film? Did you enjoy it? I was a bit apprehensive going in because there's been so much chat about it. And some people have been like, it's amazing. It's the best thing ever. And some people have been like, it's heavy handed. It's anti-men. It's all of these things. But I got to say, Ned, I found it to be a delight. I didn't think it was too heavy handed. I thought it was beautifully done in the way that it realized Barbie land and all of the things that we do as children when we're playing. And it was just a really fun, funny, silly way to spend a couple of hours. What did you think? I completely agree. It looks amazing. It kind of harked back to that golden era of film, which I would never bother watching any of these films because they look boring. But that singing in the rain thing where it's interspersed with great songs, with amazing dances, with choreography, The soundtrack, though, is my dream soundtrack. It is not a subtle film, but it is a film about Barbie, not about the Rwandan genocide. It doesn't need to approach its subject matter subtly. And if it did try and approach its subject matter subtly, it would be ridiculous and not in the right way. Exactly. It would be a completely different film. Like you would, you can't make a film about Barbie by being subtle. Like that's the point. Like everything about her is over the top. It's extra. It's pink. It's fluffy. It's sparkly. So yeah, completely agree. It, it skewered Mattel so much better than I thought it would. They dealt with how the patriarchy is quite shit for men mm. really well. 
Like the character of Alan, for example, like that's quite a great example of it, isn't it? He he wants to stand outside of that space. He's there as a sort of ally to the women, supporting the women. And it's just, it's not so heavy handed in that it's just like, this is what the patriarchy is. It's even yeah. within the cans, there's nuance of what the patriarchy is and the different elements to it. So I thought it did that quite nicely. It's really cleverly done and it really shows how much easier it is. But also I think it does address the kind of toxic masculinity stuff. Yeah. The performances. This film has to hang on the performances. Do you think they got it right with the cast? Absolutely. I think obviously there was a lot of, um, when they were casting Barbie, I think initially Amy Schumer was actually the one who was slated to play Barbie. But when you look at Margot Robbie, she is this... I mean, she plays stereotypical Barbie, but she is the stereotypical, like, beautiful woman. And she physically has all of the characteristics to play Barbie. But I think there's, she managed to bring a gravity to the performance as well when she's having that sort of existential crisis and she's dealing with what it is to be human woman in the real world and all that kind of thing. She, she does that really nicely against the very happy, clappy, everything's perfect Barbie. And then I think Ryan Gosling, someone needs to give that man an Oscar because his performance is so good. It's got to be one of the great comedy performances I think yeah, I've ever seen. Absolutely. It, it's so, every single line was delivered perfectly. He actually sung in it. I didn't realise that was his actual voice. Watching that, he obviously used to be in the Mickey Mouse Club, right, with Justin Timberlake. Britney Spears. And when you see him singing and dancing, and those aren't easy routines. It made me think of sort of Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers singing in the rain, mm. it's, which I know is definitely a reference for, for Greta Gerwig. But it's these huge singing and dancing set pieces, which you don't really see in films anymore. Maybe in things like La La Land, um, for example. But yep. it just brought a whole other element and Ryan Gosling just absolutely crushed it. Yeah, I think Margot Robbie had a harder job. She wasn't given the comedy role. She was given the straight role, yeah. which kind of suits the overarching narrative of a film as well, that the men are given the tough roles and the, and the serious one usually. Yeah. And actually, Ken is the silly supporting <laughs> character, whereas Barbie actually has to get, Margot Robbie actually has to get stuff done. How do you think it dealt with being true to the experience of being a woman. The, the bit where she's lying down on the floor and she's sort of saying, everything's awful, I can't do anything, I'm expected to do this, this and this, and I'm only one person. And I, I think it did, it did articulate it really nicely. And I think America Ferrera's character, so the, can we say the owner of Barbie in the real world, her whole yeah. speech, I can see why people would say it's too much, but in that one rant, she is encapsulating all of the things that women are expected to be and do and the weight that women carry with them. I think it did a pretty good job. I've already said a kind of 11 year old girl and their mother came up to me at the end and said, did you enjoy it? I was like, yeah, obviously. It's, it's good. Yeah. But I thought that was really interesting because she'd obviously seen you with a group of girls and you were not the only man in the cinema, but nearly. Um, you know what? I dress so badly. I think everyone just knows I'm straight. <laughs> I just, I, that's my only explanation. Yeah. That everyone looked at me with four girls and I was dressed like such a 
mid-noughties indie fan who's turned 30. They, they just thought, well, this guy, this guy doesn't need to make an effort to get by in life. Yeah, and you're with four girls all dressed in pink, sort of yeah. <laughs> singing along. Um, He's giving off a very, a very beige... <laughs> <laughs> a very beige Kennedy, exactly. What didn't you like about it, I suppose? I don't, I, there's nothing I didn't really like about it. I thought it was overall a fantastic film. I loved the detail. I loved the story. I loved the fact that most of the cast of Sex Education were making an appearance. Um, yeah, weird that. Yeah, I, I, I can't think of anything that I actively disliked. What about you? I think that we can't get away from the fact that for rule that they really took the piss out of Mattel and toy companies and put forward the argument about consumerism, that it is an advert and mm. Margot Robbie is very stereotypically beautiful. And yeah. well, she is the stereotype of beauty and she is made to look even more beautiful and skinny. And it's not Shrek where at the end she turns out to be an ogre too. That, that is something that I, I was uncomfortable with, that they're giving this message, but at the end of the day, who's making the money? People will want to look like Margot Robbie at the end of it. They're not going to want to look like Kate Yeah, McKinnon. that's true. Uh, Actually, I've just thought of one thing that I didn't like. Margot Robbie is in a weird contract, not a weird contract. She's in under contract with Chanel. And as a result, you would have seen a lot of Chanel product placement as well in her outfits. And that annoys me because firstly, I think they dress her really badly. And secondly, like as far as I know, there's no Chanel Barbie. And I just wish they'd let it go. Let her go release her from her Chanel contract. Right. How much would you pay for it? And I know how much you did pay for it. Um, and I was quite shocked to find out how much I was going to pay for it when I was offered a ticket. <laughs> Um, obviously, we went to see it at quite a bougie cinema. So, um, yeah, I would probably, I, I, I would pay the same again for that experience, to be honest. Yeah, which 20 was pounds. 20 quid. That's how much it was, wasn't it? But it was, A, a beautiful cinema and B, the vibes. It was all the girls wearing pink. You know, like we said, people were quipping along with it. Me, me and Navy. You, yeah. Apart from you and, yeah, and your, and your no, Navy. I <laughs> I paid 20 quid. I don't go to the cinema much. Yeah. And it was two hours of excellent entertainment. Exactly. In a good cinema where there weren't annoying children and there was a nice atmosphere. So yeah, 20 quid. I'd pay there it again. Go. I Boom. probably will pay it again for my mum on her birthday. That's so nice. So section two is Ned's pretentious pick. What treat did you have in store for us this week, Ned? I had the 2018 Ukrainian film, Volcano. And what is Volcano about, Ned? And also, if you could give us an idea of why you chose this one. It's about an OSCE, which is the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, translator losing his weapons inspectors he was meant to be looking after in a demilitarized zone in South Ukraine. So an area where neither Russia nor Ukraine controlled. This is prior to the invasion, but near to the conflict zone, near to Crimea, and essentially about him getting lost in a small village. Mm -hmm. In this purgatory between the Russian separatist mm -hmm. controlled area and Ukraine. And I picked it because 
I am making another podcast about uh, countries at war and their culture. And where can people watch it, Nad? People can watch it on the uh, streaming service Classicy Online. Like really amazing collection of Eastern European and post-Soviet, post-communist countries cinema. Um, but did you enjoy it, Emily? I I think first off, this is going to be a really interesting conversation because you're coming at it from the kind of historical, political view, mm. and I'm coming from it from a cinematic and entertainment perspective. I wasn't mm. expecting to enjoy it when you first sent it over. I thought, okay. Um, but I really liked it. This isn't my first foray into Ukrainian cinema. I've watched a couple of films before, one called Pamphir, which I watched recently, and one called Klondike, which was at the London Film Festival last year, both of which are incredibly raw, incredibly powerful films that have this theme of being tied to the landscape and the place, which is something that we really see coming through here. I was really compelled by this film. I don't. I can't really ex explain it beyond being really intrigued. And I, I've been thinking about it since I watched it and the themes that come up and the references. Yeah, it, it was great. I can I completely agree. In that the, you kind of do know what's going on, but you don't know if the characters know what's going on. So from a historical perspective, the area they're in is the area that was uh, completely flooded when the Russians blew up that dam a few months ago. And that, that area is incredibly evocative for Ukrainians because it's a steppe, but it's also the home place of the Cossacks, which a lot of Ukrainians take their national pass from. And the Cossacks were this freewheeling, anarchic land pirates, or at least that's what, mm. or within Ukraine, that's what the narrative around them now is. Obviously, if you're uh, Jewish, uh, the narrative around them is quite different. And the film is kind of about that anarchic in-between space mm. where there's no law and order. The first half, it's playing out almost like a horror. Yeah. Things are getting slowly worse to this character in, from Kiev. Yeah. And he's sort of going further and further into this world that he's been taken into. So I think the first thing that happens is when he's in the car with Convoy, who's who he's driving, the car breaks down, he gets out. He's like, oh, I'm going to walk to the local town, comes back and the car is gone with all the people in it, but he has the car key. So first off, that's pretty weird, all this sort of thing. And then he gets taken in by this family and starts running into all of these different situations. And every time he does, it's that horror thing where the audience is thinking, oh, don't do it. But the character does it anyway. Mm. And he gets further and further into that. But it, it isn't a horror. It's quite no, it, observational and... Yeah. Well, it becomes more and more apparent that he is living in a kind of prison at home. So there's something, there's a line he says, probably around the halfway mark of the film, where one of the characters who lives in this in-between land is saying to him, why, why are you here? Why are mm. you doing the OSCE? Why are you helping out? At first, you think he's quite naive and you don't have much backstory for him. And that's playing out like a lot of normal films. But then as you learn more about him, it subverts your expectations, I think, a little bit. Yeah. He talks about this seven-year plan and he oh. says, you know... He says, uh, by the time you're 35, 
you need to have reached your peak and this is part of my new seven-year plan. Yeah. I paused that and was thinking, oh my God. <laughs> but I think this is why where he ends up is so attractive to him mm. because it represents a freedom from these plans. Mm. And it's quite interesting that usually films like this are giving off a very anti-urban message, which I don't, it's so gritty and quite mechanised, the landscape they're in. Yeah. It's not this rolling hills untouched by man. It's a lot of ruined factories and old boats and trucks that don't work. It's almost dystopian in some ways. Mm. But the, the point isn't about machines and its impact. The, the point is more about freedom, I think. But it, there are lots of interpretations. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, it's you, you're, like you're saying, it feels as though he's being kept there. But actually, towards the end or the second half, you're thinking he's the one keeping himself here. Yeah. And, and he wants yeah, yeah. to be here. And so that sort of flips on its head the version of him that we see at the beginning. If you unpack the character at the beginning, mm. the first half wouldn't have that tension. And then as you unpack it, you get the re revelations about him without, not they're not really re revelations. It's not like he turns out he's a murderer or anything. Yeah, he's just a, norm, a normal guy from Kiev. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like if anything, the revelation is how normal he is, mm. but that makes it more understandable the actions he takes. Um, is there anything you didn't like about it? I felt it was almost trying a bit too hard when it came to the whole mirage thing and mm. the boy, the boy, the blating around and the sea. And, you know, when they see that choir and Volvers says, oh, they're not actually there. They, they come and go at will that they're, they're a mirage. So I think it was, it was trying to be a bit too meta, too clever, and sort of it didn't need explaining those sort of things because there's often things that happen in it where, as a viewer, you're thinking, is that there? Is that not? And I don't know if this was just me, but at the end, when he's on the boat, I mean, I, I don't know how many people are going to watch this, but spoiler, when he, they're on the boat and then there's another version of himself on the boat. That was the bit that got me a bit like, ugh, trying to be a bit too smart here. I agree. I, I also think that the female character mm. is slightly too close to Manic uh, Pixie Dream Girl. Yeah. And their their romance, I think, was a bit too obvious. It could have, mm. again, it could have been done in a more nuanced way or wasn't that necessary. It didn't need to be realised in that way, potentially. Um, but yeah, yeah you, you're I, right about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, for sure. Interesting character, but I think that the other characters potentially were less... Their, their characters I've probably not seen as much. Mm. Uh, whereas that character I felt I'd seen before. Very well acted. Yeah. Nothing particularly egregious about it, but just if I'm picking stuff, I would yeah. say that's my issue. Yeah. And you know that this was the first feature of the director and that he, not all of the cast were actors. So some of them are just regular people. Oh, really? Almost like Joanna Hogg from, you know, our days in Venice. Um, some of the films of hers that we watched where it's this more naturalistic, realistic, bordering on documentary almost, which is an interesting technique. And you can sort of, 
feel that a little bit in in some of the characters. Um, also, the the title. Did you read about the title, volcano? No, I didn't actually. So there's two things. First, two th- Well, first off, the the idea of this incident being a volcano that blew up this guy's life and the second one being that it was actually a title for another film that the director was making and they had to change it and he just kept the title <laughs> no really yeah. um, well it kind of works it, I mean, it works it does it doesn't i mean you, they could have called it sunflower you know <laughs> okay. yeah yeah they could have called it lots of things <laughs> when in film school when in the have you seen it film school would you watch us I think relatively early on, I feel like it's an accessible mm. film. Um, you know, first first year, end of year. It's sort of a, a foreign cinema module. And I do think that as a, you know, country, we don't watch enough foreign cinema at all. But Ukrainian cinema especially, I'm sure, doesn't get the attention that it deserves. So, um well, yeah. it's good you're saying that because of this other podcast I'm doing in the next few weeks, we will be doing Ukrainian films as my pretentious picks. Now, from the sublime to the ridiculous, Emily, what did you pick for our buzzy pick this week? This week, Nad, I have chosen the one and only and just like that. Oh. Why did you pick it? The reason I picked it is I'm a big SATC Sex and the City for the fans. Um, big like fan of Sex and the City. Obviously, it came out in the nineties. <laughs> Obviously, it came out in the nineties. But when I was at school, like we would just watch this the whole time. Totally obsessed. Um, watched every single episode probably like a hundred times. And so just just like the rest of the fans, super excited to see the honeys back on our screens. When I watched the first season of this. I joined in the hating, okay? I was like, they've ruined it. Oh my God, this is trash. Did I watch all of it? Yes. But then when the second season came out recently, I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch it again. And actually, Ned, I thought this isn't as bad as everyone's saying it is. What did you think? (sighs) I can't really understand it because. It is so ham-fisted and weirdly written. Sex and the City, which I've watched quite a lot of. I've never sat down and watched it in full, but I've, I've always liked it when I've watched it. There's such a sharpness about Sex and the City. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there are some problematic things, but it was made in the 90s. It's about pretty problematic people. And you know what? Kind of embraced it. It worked. This is so clumpy and clumsy and. And of course, what it's about is it's picking up Carrie, Charlotte and Miranda's lives as they, as they kind of become a new age. It's just a reboot of them in a new age when they're married or have children or whatever. And like the way the jokes are written is there's almost like a pause for laughter, but there's no laugh track. And it's so different in tone in that way to Sex and the City. It's trying so hard to be funny. The one thing it does do right is its depiction of a glamorous life of a podcaster is bang on. <laughs> because Carrie now, in this 
touch towards modernity, no longer is a columnist that no one understands where she gets all her money from. She's now an incredibly successful podcaster, which actually is more realistic than her making loads of money as a columnist. Which is why you've got such a good collection of Manolo Blahnik shoes, Ned. I've got two questions for you. So first question is, do you think it's less funny without Samantha? This is a big, big thing. This is the the problem. I think nearly every single problem would be solved with Samantha in it. Some the like the absence of Samantha is huge, and for like a lot of people, like Samantha was the favorite character. I've I've heard not rumors, theories that her character is a gay man in the body of a woman. She's very camp. She's very like fluid. She's very fabulous, and so she's the one who's to like tell people like it is. She's bringing the sass, and without her, the group is a bit lame. Like let's be clear. How okay in terms of like the wokery and stuff? Because I'm interested to get into this because I actually think. Have have my views, but how could they have improved upon that? Because let's be clear, twenty five years have gone by since the series was made. The characters, the context, like it's all moved on. How could they have done it better? Have you seen it be done better for women of this like age anywhere in like any other shows? No, I haven't because there's there's nothing comparable with this. So like let's let's be be honest about it. Like there there is no program that has been rebooted with a very particular focus a Mm -hmm. a program that was very modern which now seems quite dated it's so specific to the show the epoch changing show that it was originally that they would have to do this there is comedy sitcom on hbo called hacks which i've not seen Mm -hmm. but is all about a uh like middle-aged female comedian basically trying to rebrand herself with the help of a Gen Zer, right. which apparently is incredible, uh, but I've not seen it. Yeah. So I, I'd be interested in seeing that. I don't mind the fact that they're approaching these topics. I will say the second series does it a lot better. Yeah. Would you recommend it? I I really would. I think that it's okay. Don't get me wrong. It's not an amazing show. It's not as good as Sex and the City. And if you come into it thinking you're going to be watching Sex and the City, like you're not you're just not it's trash let's let's say it is it is is. is. is a trashy trashy show it's a trashy show yeah exactly it's not it hasn't got a lot of the like bite and the whimsy of the first season but what it does have is a lot of the core which is the fashion like a lot of people are watching it for the style for this glamorous lifestyle that these women are living the friendship part of it and i do think that i haven't seen other shows dealing with quote unquote, the wokery for like the older generation in this way. Yes, they're dealing in very ham-fistedly, shoehorning in transgender kids, non-binary adults, as well as things like menopause. But I'm like, if I'm thinking about my parents or someone dealing with these kind of things, this is kind of a reflection of how they would approach it in a way when it's so new. So in a way, I'm like, actually, it's doing a pretty good job and it's it's not doing it really well but i respect the way in which it's being done it's a very american show it's become more american which probably reflects the experience of a showrunner's time and emily in paris becoming a fascist <laughs> but there's a bit where where one of the characters has a european boyfriend who's still living with her ex-wife and they're like oh that's so european what the fuck are you on about <laughs> come on guys <laughs> question for you nad uh, are you a carrie samantha miranda or charlotte I'm a carry. Let's not fuck around. <laughs> um, I'd say you're a Miranda. You're just saying that because I have ginger hair, but yes, people, 
Yes. No, you're a, you're a, you're a ambitious woman. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is your favorite man from Sex and City? Not like, which is the hunkiest? Like, which do you think is the best male character? Who's their friend that died in real life? Oh, Stanford Blatch. Stanford, yeah. Yeah. You know what? They really get men right because all the men are fucking, they're fucking dickheads. Or they're really wet. <laughs> they're either, they're either, it's pretty accurate. I like, actually, I like Smith Jared. I think he's a good one. Yeah. I, I do not like Aiden and I cannot believe that he's in the trailers for this season because he is a monster. How bingeable is it? A couple of episodes bingeable. They are releasing it week by week on Now TV, which is annoying, but it's relatively bingeable. Two or three pints bingeable. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'd say, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, you can put one episode on and before you know it, you've watched three. Yeah. But yeah. You, you're not going to, when you do know it, you're going to stop. Yeah. You'll, you'll hit a critical mass and be like, nah, I'm done. And is it, would you say it's worth your time, Ned? No. <laughs> it is so cringeworthy. No, it's crap. <laughs> it's so bad. But as I always say, I think if you want to, like when people are slagging it off, like they have been slagging this off, you've got to watch it just so you can have an opinion, not just like jump on the train and be rude about it like everyone else just without having watched it. So no, yeah, yeah. I've watched, I've watched a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, if you this. find yourself, if you find yourself watching it, don't turn off the screen immediately. You'll yeah. probably get something out of it. But I can't remember <laughs> a single thing that I've seen in it that I thought was good. Everything is just very secretive bad in it. It's somehow entertaining. There's not a moment where I'm like, well, that's, that's really yeah. good. There's not a single issue they've approached <laughs> in a way where I thought, other than broadly, it's good they're being sympathetic that they have done this in an effective or dramatically engaging way. Yeah, but like the takeaway is at least they're trying, right? Like, <laughs> just like that, at least they're trying. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Nerd. That is everything for today. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to give us a like, follow, and subscribe, and follow us on Instagram at haveyou.seenit.